and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you, everybody, for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? Pretty excited. Yeah? Yeah. Also, you can kind of hear in the background, listeners, our heater popping off, and that's because we are in the polar vortex. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's February in Calgary, so this is probably what it would be like anyways without, like, a weird weather event, because, like, February tends to be the coldest month here anyways. Yeah. But, yes, we are sitting under a blanket of snow. We're basically snowed in. We've got sort of a nice, white, frosty winter wonderland outside. It is negative 27 degrees Celsius outside, which is minus 16 in Fahrenheit. Thank you for translating that to people. Yeah, for our American listeners and basically no one else. Um, (laughs) It's sort of a nice day to just be snowed in, not going outside, and taking a big, long chunk out of our day uh, to talk about our movie this week. You might even say, take a long cat nap. I mean, I feel like if we're napping, it'll be a bad audio experience for our listeners. But the the feel, the vibe that's evoked by a cat nap of staying cozy inside and curled up. Okay, I mean, I guess you're just trying to go for the pun, which is all you're ever trying to do. Um, So today, we are watching Cat People from 1942, directed by Jacques Tourneur. This is um, a movie both Sarah and I have seen. Uh, It's one of my favorite horror movies, and it's certainly one of your favorite horror movies. I would even just say, like, one of my favorite movies. Mm -hmm. Was the first time we saw this movie, or the first time you saw this movie, was that when we were doing, like, that little stretch of classic horror movie watching we did, like, a couple years ago? Yeah. Um, A few Octobers ago, Ben and I decided to spend all of October watching classic horror movies, and a few of them I had seen, quite a few I had not, and Cat People I'd never heard of before then, and it made quite an impact on me in terms of my love of the genre. Yeah, this was about two years before the show started. Yeah. Which I guess makes it, like, four years ago now. And I think it's also probably what sparked the idea of the podcast in your brain. Certainly, like, the format of the show, where we kind of look at, like, the social underpinnings of these movies and what they say about society, because I think that was the thing that you really came away from watching Cat People that first time very strongly, was that, like, oh, this movie was actually talking about things. Yeah, it had something to say. hmm And it said it well. Cat People is about a lot of broad social issues that I think still speak to today, but certainly were rooted in concerns of the 1940s, I guess. Yeah, um, it was very surprising not only to see a horror movie, but a movie from 1942, especially post-code, addressing social problems in the way that it did. Um, It brings up women's sexuality, it brings up 
um, mental illness and psychiatry. You know, it, it, it features and is set around a troubled marriage. Mm-hmm. And that was stuff that, like, you know, I saw in pre-code movies, but never really post-code movies. Um, this, I guess, early into the code era, like, eventually films figured out how to talk around this stuff, but it, it was just surprising to me. Well, why don't we talk about some of these social issues, or at least what they were like in the 1940s, um, to give our listeners kind of a bit of a grounding in what Cat People was talking about. Because I think, as much as I think a lot of those themes still speak very strongly to 2019, um, it's useful to know what the cultural attitudes were actually at the time. Definitely. I think when people watch Cat People, what will be most striking is the way it kind of discusses sexuality. I think there's a common cultural idea that everyone was a little bit of a prude about sex until the late 60s or early 70s. Yeah, the the sexual revolution. Exactly. And certainly you can make the case for that, um, especially in the way that the times are depicted in media, or even media of that time period. But it's important to remember that media of that time period is heavily censored, right? Like, we talk about the code and how you couldn't put a bunch of stuff in a movie. That didn't mean that that stuff didn't exist suddenly in culture, right? Definitely. Or in the world. So as you said, like, we can't really trust media of the time <laughs> in terms of, like, its depiction of female sexuality. Right. You know, so I, I find it useful to kind of go back to what was sexual education like Oh, and I know that that sounds like, oh, fucking Sarah, what does that have to do with cat people? No, trust me. In around the year 1900, uh, sex education kind of focused on, like, discouraging behavior and thoughts, kind of like anti-sex. Abstinence education. If things were taught in the sense of, like, how a baby was born, <laughs> it was very unemotional and dry facts. Right. By 1940 things had kind of shifted to long-term sexual development of people. So you kind of see puberty being discussed a bit more. You know, you're taught the very scientific way of, like, reproduction. Mm. Um, a scientific method of the, all of that. But nothing around, like, sex as, like, fulfillment of pleasure or anything other than procreation. Right, like, the human element is very taken out of it. It's just a very sort of dry, like... Mm -hmm. And then the spermazoa do their thing kind of discussion. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So there's not much knowledge in the way of discussing sex with partners, um, moderating or refusing sex, anything of that sort. Mm -hmm. In 1939, this guy named Elmo Roper um, conducted a survey which asked people in America about premarital sex. Okay. Um, and I thought this was very interesting. Um... 47% of women said that it was wicked, like specifically using that phrase, wicked, okay, sure. for if someone were to have premarital sex, while only 28% of men said that it was wicked. And like wicked in a very like 1940s use of the word as in evil, not like wicked as in like a 1980s use of the word, Ugh. meaning like rad. Yeah, I didn't even think of... Yeah. People trying to come up with that. It's, it's definitely, like, wicked as in morality. Also, what's interesting about that is that, like, that poll doesn't 
necessarily mean that those 47% of women who said it was wicked haven't done it. Like, that wasn't like, have you done it? Yes, no. That was just, no, I think it's bad, which is a different question altogether. Yeah. So, like, I don't know, those numbers kind of surprised me because, like, even 47%, that's less than half of people, of women, I guess I should say, Mm -hmm. think premarital sex is wicked. Yeah. Which means you have a majority of people who think it's just fine. It doesn't surprise me that the number of, uh, the percentage for men who think it's wicked is smaller, though. That is, that's unsurprising. Yeah, because of the... Double standards. Double standards and the cultural idea of, like, men inherently being more sexual, Mm -hmm. which is not the case. And I thought it was also just, like, interesting to acknowledge that... The American Birth Control League with Margaret Sanger started in 1921. By 1942, they had changed the name to Planned Parenthood. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. To make it sound more like, no, we do support families, rather than just like, nah, don't have kids type deal. So I feel like, you know, it might not be the majority of Americans. People are sexual. Yes. People are people. Yes. People aren't prudes. Sex education isn't the best, but it's not what you think of, maybe what I would have considered before, like, digging into this. Yeah, like, as much as the culture and the cultural attitudes change, people are still people, and people still like having sex. Yes. (laughs) Um, I know, revolutionary idea, right? In 2005, history professor Alan Patigny of the University of Florida was using the stats of who was becoming a single mom between the start of World War One and uh, the early 50s. Um, and now there's a big caveat to these stats, but I'll just lay them out and then I'll give the caveat. So he noticed that the frequency of single mothers increased three times um, between 1941 and 1953. And he uses this to argue that people were having premarital sex, people were having sex. Right. Even in the early 40s. Now, I will just point out, like, in what I read about Alan Patikny here, um, he doesn't seem to consider this, but it's World War II. People are dying. Specifically, men are out there dying. So maybe Mm. that's why there's an increase of single moms? Okay. Hmm. Um, He doesn't seem to, like, acknowledge this. Also, like, you can also have instances of sex occurring without instances of childbirth. So... Yeah. It doesn't it's not like a direct one to one correlation to prove that people were having more sex, but obviously like babies come from somewhere, so <laughs> it does at least prove something. Yeah. Um it's not just the stork. Also like, yes, if the soldiers are dying you'd have more single mothers, but also I bet that like, hey baby, I'm going off to France and I might not come back was like a pretty like oft used hey, let's go to third base on this date kind of line. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So I didn't really put much stock into what Alan Padigny was saying here, Um, but in 2011, sociologist David Frank of the University of California was arguing that by 1945, the view of sex was changing from procreation-based to, hey, I enjoy this. So um, discussion of sex changing to enjoyment or fulfillment. Recreational sex. Recreational sex. There we go. Um, And I would also just want to point out that the Kinsey reports on sexuality for men came out in 1948 and women in 1953, but the Kinsey reports kind of demonstrate that discussions of sexuality are happening in the 40s. Mm -hmm. But 
there's still a bit of silence around what sexuality means to someone. You know, people are having sex, people realize that it leads to babies. You know, we know that it, <laughs> yes. it's how procreation happens. Yeah. Um, and by, like, the mid-40s, it's kind of turning towards, like, recreation and enjoyment, but it's still largely, like, you know, where are you going to get this information? People aren't talking about it as freely as they would by the 60s. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just because there's people like Kinsey doing studies doesn't mean that, like, people are in a coffee shop in 1943 being like, and so the orgasm I had last night, like, not <laughs> quite like that. Yeah, um, kind of what Alan Patikny was trying to get at with these stats, which, you know, I think his idea is sound, even if his stats aren't. By the 60s and 70s, people were doing what they say. You know, they were saying, they were talking about sex and doing sex. I'm doing sex. Um, having sex. Versus, like, the 40s, they were having sex but not really talking about it. Okay. That being said, I do just want to acknowledge that, like, the stats and these studies and everything that I've kind of pointed out here have kind of focused on, on single people. You know, they might be in, like, a relationship of, like, dating, but it's very focused on sexual activity outside of marriage. Right. Sexual activity within marriage didn't really come up in discussions until the mid-80s, and you can kind of see that with marital rape not being considered a thing until the late 80s and not being made illegal until, like, 1993 across the states. Right. I guess because, like, sex within marriage, like, is a given. Right. Like, that's where it's supposed to happen, so we're, we don't need to talk about it or ask questions, because that's fine. That's where it's supposed to live. Mm -hmm. Right. I think the part of all of those stats I just threw at people um, that was kind of surprising to me was the Elmo Roper survey mm. of people, of whether people considered recreational sex as wicked. Mm -hmm. um, because cat people <laughs> is basically talking about mental illness as well as sexual activity or sexuality because discussions about sexuality or sexual promiscuity and mental illness kind of go hand in hand for a long time. Yeah, like um, homosexuality was a uh, considered a uh, mental illness uh, officially for a very long time, things mm -hmm. like that. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. In 1656, King Louis XIV uh, established the Pitié Salpêtrière Hospital for Prostitutes and the Mentally Ill. That's, that's... So, a hospital specifically for sex workers and mentally ill folks. Right, so we are just lumping them... Right in. I gotcha. Um, discussions around mental health and women kind of go back a long ways as well. Like, we see in the Victorian age women as... Um, being considered mentally ill if they have mood swings, anxiety, depression, hysteria, if they're disobedient. Basically, if they're fed up with patriarchy or PMSing, they're mentally ill and should go into an asylum. Yeah, for a long time, the mental health establishment was a way of controlling women who were difficult. Yes. Like, you mentioned hysteria briefly, but, like, hysteria isn't even, like, a real thing. thing. It's a catch-all term that you use to diagnose difficult women. You can point to the contributions of women um, as helping treatment of the mentally ill or of discussing mental health 
getting better. For example, before 1840, asylums were akin to jails, basically, until Dorothea Dix, who uh, got people to, you know, get rid of the chains in there. Or in the 1880s, when Nellie Bly posed as a patient and wrote a book about her experience called Ten Days in a Madhouse, kind of sparked discussions about how we actually treat these people. Yeah, because your Victorian asylums were basically just dungeons that you threw these people into so you didn't have to deal with them anymore. Yeah. So there's these discussions leading up to the turn of the century about, you know, how do we actually treat these people? And that's both in the terms of, like, are they treated like people? But also, how do we medically treat Mm -hmm. people? Enter Sigmund Freud and the psychoanalytic method of talking about your problems. Right. And, like, Freud is a complex character. Let's put it like that. He's a little out there. We also, like, yeah, I mean, we could do... A whole podcast on Freud. Freud. There's a lot of, like... All of his theories are bunk. But what I do appreciate with him is that he brings up, like, it's thanks to Sigmund Freud that we now are talking about the problem rather than just, like, throwing someone into a jail-like place. There's so much interesting stuff if you want to read about Sigmund Freud because, like, there are things that he said early in his career that he, um, like, renounced later in his career. There's also things where... Like, he had good theories early in his career that got changed into worse theories later because they weren't accepted initially. There's a lot of interesting stuff that you can look at here. But yeah, he without him, we wouldn't have, you know, therapy as we know it today, right? Yeah. Yeah, Freud was all about, just to kind of sum, sum him up in a single sentence, uh, believed that, like, mental illness was the result of, like, unconscious desires. Very, very surface-level explanation of Freud, but that's it. Yeah, and and tied to, like, often tied to childhood trauma and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Carl Jung uh, worked with Freud, and he had a similar idea, only looking at, like, archetypes and the cultural or mythic archetypes that you understood, and you're unconscious kind of trying to reconcile with those. But people kind of found that, like, talking about the problem takes too long, so (laughs) some quick fixes that were common at this time included insulin-induced comas, lobotomies, um, purposely infecting people with malaria so that people would have fevers and the fever would cure you, um, or just plain old electroshock therapy. Right. So all of that's bad. But there were still movements towards better understanding the human brain. Um, For example, in 1923, German pharmacologist Otto Lurie and English neuroscientist Sir Henry Dale discovered acetylcholine, uh, which was, is the first neurotransmitter to be described. Um, 1933, Hungarian psychiatrist Sandor Ferenczi published a paper that was radical for the time because he believed childhood survivors of abuse and pointed to how the current psychological state of adults could be directly tied to this childhood trauma. Freud broke his partnership with this guy over this because Freud doesn't believe in that, but that's fine. And by the 40s and 50s, chemical treatments are starting to come in. Uh, Chemical as in, like, using drugs to try to help chemically balance out your brain, basically. Yeah, we're we're talking about, like, pharmaceuticals, you know. Yeah. Big part of, like, how people are conceptualizing mental health. In 1942, uh, it's kind of hard to point out because most of the 
changes in how people thought about mental health came around 1945 and 46, partly due to this book called The Snake Pit by Mary Jane Ward, published in 1946, and it had a 48 film adaptation. And it's a semi-autobiographical story about her recovery from mental illness. Okay. But the main thing that spurred conversations about mental health was the end of the Second World War. In 1946, there was the National Mental Health Act, which was motivated mainly by considering the mental health of veterans and their families. But in 1942, we don't really have any of that. All of that's in the future. So it's not really being discussed. What were, like, the attitudes around, like, the mentally ill? Or, like, the profession of psychologists, psychiatrists, like you had people like Freud or Jung or whatever doing psychoanalysis and stuff, but like, you know, was that considered normal and healthy to go see a psychoanalyst or was that considered to be like weird? Was it considered to be quackery? Like what were the attitudes around it? A little bit of both, honestly. Um, Psychology is still pretty in its infancy at this point. Like Freud is getting a lot of notoriety by going around and talking about things, but he's also talking about things that are really, really fucking weird. I think that um, because we see a lot of concern about mental health come into policy after the war, people probably thought it was really related to a war-related trauma. Sure. You know, something big, right? The First World War has happened, and so shell shock has been documented, but I think that the common idea about mental health was really like soldiers. You know, someone who went through this great big trauma needs to see someone. The average person going to see someone, like, really? Do you really need to go see someone? Like, you weren't in the war? Like, you're in America. You're doing fine. That was probably a common idea. I think that's also why Freud was a little revolutionary or radical because it was just everyday people he was talking to. So perhaps then the idea about, like, anyone, everyone should go to therapy. Like, the average person can go to therapy and talk about these things. That's starting to come out, but then with the end of the Second World War, it kind of goes back to being, well, only soldiers need to talk about it. Yeah, and it's interesting because in Cat People, the character, the central character of the film who's having these issues is a woman and not, has nothing to do with the war. And you talked about how, like, in the Victorian era, like, mental health issues were used as a weapon against women um, to kind of control them or put them away. Was that still prevalent by the 40s? Or, like, what had changed in the attitudes around women's mental health? Yeah, I think it was still definitely used as a weapon against more uh, difficult women. The fact that more people are kind of talking about it outside of the context of like a mental asylum is promising, but mental asylums are still up and running and people um, are still getting shipped off to them. And kind of what I used to like justify this statement is, have you ever heard of Rosemary Kennedy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, President John F. Kennedy's sister. Yeah. Who was uh, lobotomized. Yeah, in the 40s, um, like 1941. Uh, she, it was feared that she would be an embarrassment to the family because of how... She had like a learning disorder or something like that. Like, not anything like that we would today consider to be like an insurmountable disability. 
Yeah, well, like, she would have mood swings, she would have um, outbursts, but she also did have, like, the learning disability, and to avoid her becoming an embarrassment to the family, they lobotomized her. Yeah, and then just, like, left her in a, like, a, a mental health facility for the rest of her life, basically. Yeah. So, that's 1941 that that happens, and it's not like the Kennedys are like the average American, but I think the fact that that was the solution they went with kind mm. of demonstrates that women are still kind of being controlled in a way. As far as like the prevalent ideas in psychology at the time, we have Freud who, like I said, um, unconscious desires kind of come from trauma. Frenzy, who is like straight up, no trauma is what's causing this stuff. Um, it's not about desires, it's just legitimately the trauma that you, that you experience. And then we have Jung, who is, I would almost argue, like a mix of both a little bit because he looks at your current disorders coming from you struggling to reconcile your understanding of spiritual, mythic, or cultural archetypes okay. and meanings. And I bring this up because I think that that would be the easiest way to kind of if you wanted to psychoanalyze Irina in Cat People, a Jungian perspective is probably best. Yeah, because what her whole deal is, is coming from like the cultural beliefs of her people and what's surrounding her. And, mm -hmm. you know, if we want to talk about Jungian archetypes, I'm sure that someone with a degree in this stuff could talk to me about what the cat symbolizes, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Um, so for someone who hasn't seen cat people, Irina comes from a village in Eastern Europe, in Serbia specifically. Um, the women in her village will turn into a panther and kill the man they love upon having sex. It doesn't matter if it's marital or premarital, extramarital. Any Those are all, yeah. All, any sexual activity. All that the sex. Happens. All the sex. And, in the film, you kind of see her struggling to understand and reconcile her own sexuality. Um, I think Jung would say that she's superimposing this myth about a panther um, as justification for avoiding her own understanding of sexuality. And especially with, like, sex education, as I pointed out, it's very focused on just procreation. Um, it's not quite there talking about fulfillment or the enjoyment of sex. Um, and because no one's really wanting to talk about sex, any kind of understanding about sexual activity would kind of come from, like, your family. Right. For, for women, it would be passed down from mother to daughter. Yeah, you get the birds and the bees uh, talk from your parents. Mm -hmm. And yeah. if... And I think for Irina, like, growing up in this small village, like, this myth would have been passed down as part of her sexual education. Oh, yeah, for sure. And if you want to talk about trauma, I think Irina's kind of gone through that through her immigration to the States. Um, so I'm going to like pivot a little bit to talk about immigration in the States very quick. For sure. I promise it's relevant. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. The The lead character of the film, as you just mentioned, is is an immigrant. So yeah. this, this is another sort of issue that the movie talks upon, for sure. Or at least in folks. Mm -hmm. um, so pre-World War One. Immigration in the United States was fairly open, but post-World War I, nationalism and the suspicion of foreigners increased, and throughout the 20s, there were a series of laws that limited immigration. This is also when the United States was, like, very isolationist in Correct. its outlook as well. Yeah. Um, throughout the 30s and 40s, 
of immigration visas, about 80% were allowed to Northern and Western Europeans, with about 14% to Eastern and Southern Europeans. Interesting. And then in 1940, there's the Nationality Act, which was later appealed in the 50s, but it really, like, tried to break down exactly how to determine who was American and who can be American. Interesting. So this is a very kind of hostile environment for Irina. I would argue that it's very lonely, with not much of a community that shares her cultural background. Right. And, you know, of course you say that immigration was limited from Eastern and Southern Europe. And, you know, Eastern Europe, you're talking about countries in the Russian sphere of influence. Southern Europe, you're talking about, like, Italy... Like, the, the countries that were falling under fascism that had the most refugees coming from them are the ones being turned away. Yeah. And I, I think for Irina, like, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword because, like, when you are alone and you have your these very specific cultural beliefs, you would want to hold on to those superstitions and beliefs in a way to, like, remain close to your roots and resist assimilation. On the other hand, that would kind of hold you back from assimilating, so it would kind of emphasize your otherness. Yeah, for sure. Now, I don't know if anyone who believes this would be listening to our podcasts, but there are some people who would say, Sarah, you're putting way too much stock or credit to cat people to argue that they are invoking all of these things, or like purposely invoking these things. Like I said, I don't think anyone who would believe that would listen to our show, given like what we talk about each week. But I, I just want to point out a little bit about Val Luton. We haven't really mentioned Val Luton at all yet in the podcast, which is funny, I think. Um, Val Luton is the producer of Cat People, and there's a lot of strong evidence that he wrote, or at least rewrote, parts of Cat People, if not all yeah. of it. Yeah, regardless of what he did for the script, he's responsible for the story. Yeah. For sure. And Luton, before getting involved in Hollywood, was a writer of saucy pulp thrillers. He wrote books like The Cossack Sword in 1926, Four Wives, and The Laughing Woman in 1933, and kind of most famously No Bed of Her Own in 1932, which was the first novel to directly address and talk about the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. In these novels, like, he talks about social issues and, like, character psychology, really, despite the backdrop, or in spite of the backdrop of pulp, saucy, uh, rife with sexuality type of stories. And I, I think that shows that he's a very intelligent writer. He understands what goes into a character's flaw or personality. And actually, he wrote a story that some people have pointed to as, like, the origins of cat people, in 1930, uh, he wrote a short story called The Begita for Weir Weird Tales in July of 1930. And it is about a black leopard believed to be a werecat who is capable of turning into a beautiful woman who will seduce you and then kill you. Mm. But I did find this quote, and I thought it was interesting, so I wanted to share it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this quote kind of demonstrates that, like, Luton is already thinking about what becomes kind of characteristic in his films, which is not really showing anything. Hmm. Again, he rode through the wood. Again, he peered right and left for some sign of the beast. 
Every rustle of the wind, every mouse that scampered, flooded his heart with fear and filled his eyes with the lethe black bulk of the Begita. With all his heart he wished that the beast would materialize. Anything, even deep wounds, would be better than this uncertainty, this darkness haunted by the dark form of the werebeast. Yeah, so the movie Cat People is certainly dealing with, like, a lot in terms of its subtext. And I'm glad that you bring up Val Luton, who was really, I think, a big part of the creative energy behind the movie. Um, And you're right, it's a little weird we haven't talked about him yet, um, mostly because we haven't really talked about uh, the movie yet. We've talked Mm -hmm. about themes and um, cultural context. But before I can kind of talk more about Val Luton and uh, his contributions to the film, uh, I have to kind of set the scene for the economic, I guess, uh, (laughs) context of when this movie was made and how it was made. So uh, this is our first film that we're watching on the podcast that was produced by RKO Radio Pictures, Mm -hmm. which was one of the big major studios in Hollywood during the Golden Age. So, uh, like in previous episodes, I just want to give a bit of a brief history of RKO up to the point that they made this movie, um, because this was actually a very important movie in the history of the studio. So the rise of sound film in the late 1920s sparked a race for better audio technology for films. And we talked about that race um, in depth in our episode on the Bat Whispers, which was our first sound film that we Mm -hmm. looked at for the show. That was around episode 30 or so. This race for better technology was both on the production side and the exhibition side. General Electric developed Photophone, a sound-on-film technological system that fell under the control of their subsidiary, the Radio Corporation of America, better known as RCA. However, the technology lacked a customer by the time it was actually ready to be marketed, because Warner Brothers uh, had Vitaphone, their sound-on-disc system, Fox had Movietone, their sound-on-film system, and the other studios, uh, Paramount, MGM, and Universal, had contracted Western Electric, General Electric's competitor, for another sound-on-film system. So they had this Photophone sound-on-film system, but no one to sell it to. Mm. So David Sarnoff... Uh, the general manager of RCA approached Joseph Kennedy, the father of JFK, and thus of Rosemary Kennedy. So that was a bit of a coincidence. Joseph Kennedy owned the distribution company, the Film Booking Offices of America. And in 1927, General Electric acquired a controlling interest in FBO. Then Kennedy set about acquiring a theater chain. And the Keith Albee Orpheum theater chain was looking to transition to film as live vaudeville show attendance had kind of died off by the late 20s. KAO had also already purchased the U.S. division of Pathé and the production company of Cecil B. DeMille in 1927 to facilitate their transition to film. So to back that up, you had the theater chain, KAO, that owned their own film production company, um, Pathé. And then you had Film Booking Offices of America, which was a distributor owned by Kennedy that was looking to buy out KAO. And then above that, you had David Sarnoff and RCA looking to buy out FBO. 
So, by purchasing KAO in 1928, RCA now had an entire vertically integrated movie studio to be a customer for their sound on film system. <laughs> David Sarnoff was made chairman of the board of the newly created Radio Keith Orpheum Corporation, or RKO. Kennedy arranged for RKO to buy out his interests in FBO, KAO, and Pathé, and former FBO vice president Joseph Schnitzer was made head of production of the new studio, RKO Radio Pictures. A lot of abbreviations in this one. Yes. So, yeah, basically by the time the studio was up and running, Kennedy was now out of the picture. Because <laughs> it, it's studio picture. Right. Okay. RKO's early films were musicals, as you may expect for a studio that was basically just founded to show off sound technology. The studio had some early successes. Uh, the Western Cimarron won Best Picture in 1931, uh, and actually was, I think, the last Western to win Best Picture for a very long time after that. Oh. Um, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And the studio took advantage of the Great Depression to buy up theaters that the other studios were selling off from their exhibition chains so that RKO could gain an exhibition network uh, that would rival that of the other studios. The decline, however, in musicals' popularity in the early 1930s, which is something that we've mentioned in previous episodes, led to David Sarnoff hiring 29-year-old maverick David O. Selznick as his new head of production to revitalize the content of RKO's uh, pictures. Selznick produced King Kong in 1933, and he signed stars Catherine Hepburn and Fred Astaire to the company. Um, in both cases, it was their first studio, so they were made stars by their RKO films. And these um, acts, along with many others, ended up producing record profits for RKO. Mm -hmm. Selznick left the company over creative control disputes and was replaced by King Kong director Marion C. Cooper. The company had financial difficulties thereafter, falling into receivership for the rest of the 1930s. But, despite the bankruptcy, it continued to innovate and take risks, including producing the first feature film in three-strip Technicolor, 1935's Becky Sharp. Though, that may have had something to do with Cooper owning stock in Technicolor. Gotta make that dollar-dollar bills. Mm-hmm. That same year, RKO became the distributor of the films of Walt Disney, uh, both the shorts and, beginning in 1937, the feature-length films, with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves assuming the record for highest-grossing movie of all time uh, for a brief period between when it came out and when Gone with the Wind came out two years later. <laughs> the studio signed more stars, like Cary Grant, and pioneered new genres with films like Bringing Up Baby in 1938. Its technical departments were considered some of the finest in all of Hollywood. In 1938, George J. Schaefer became head of production. He was handpicked by David Sarnoff and also the Rockefeller brothers, who had bought a majority share of RKO in 1935. Schaefer's tenure uh, as studio head was marked by the slogan, quality pictures at a premium price, and he believed in a business model whereby the studio would distribute the work of independent producers who would have large amounts of creative control. 
Their first big catch with this strategy was producer Samuel Goldwyn. Um, oh, who, of like Goldwyn. Yeah, of Metro Goldwyn Mayer. Uh, he was one of the co-founders of that studio, but had actually left MGM behind by this time to become an independent producer. And they also made deals with David O. Selznick, uh, distributing Alfred Hitchcock films when Hitchcock was under contract to Selznick, and leasing RKO Studio lots to Selznick for the filming of Gone with the Wind. <laughs> films like Disney's Pinocchio led to RKO coming out of bankruptcy in 1940 under George J. Schaefer, and this encouraged the studio to take more chances, fostering artistically ambitious projects. However, this ambition led to a series of disasters, financially if not critically. First you had uh, Disney's Fantasia, which Mm. was an artistically ambitious project, but also extremely expensive. And the loss of the European market due to World War II ended up crippling Walt Disney's business, uh, which stayed alive throughout the 1940s because they became a producer of propaganda for the U.S. military. Uh, Schaefer was also the one who hired 25-year-old theater and radio maverick Orson Welles uh, with one of the best contracts ever offered in Hollywood uh, to someone who had never made a movie before. A two-picture deal with complete creative control. It's crazy. Wells's first film, Citizen Kane, was released in 1941, and while it was nominated for several Oscars and it was critically acclaimed, uh, its content angered newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst, as the film was seen to be a thinly veiled version of Hearst's life. Hearst blocked advertisement of the film uh, in his newspapers and radio stations and threatened to cut off ad business for theaters that booked the film. As a result, uh, Citizen Kane tanked at the box office, losing $160,000 on an approximate cost of $850,000. So they spent $850,000 to make the movie, and the box office gross was $160,000 less than that. Oof, okay. Meanwhile, as Citizen Kane was bombing across America, uh, Wells was already deep into production on three other films for RKO. His second film, uh, part of his original contract, was The Magnificent Ambersons, a literary adaptation that was actually costlier and more ambitious than Citizen Kane. Journey into Fear uh, was a cheaper, more popular Uh, literary adaptation because it was based on a pulp thriller. Then, Wells, along with the also financially troubled Walt Disney, was tapped by the U.S. government to head to South America as part of the Good Neighbors program, which was designed to improve relations between the U.S. and South American nations um, because South America had a lot of Nazi-inclined nations at the time. Disney produced two films as part of the project, 1942's Saludos Amigos and 1943's The Three Caballeros. But Wells's film, It's All True, halted production when Wells discovered that RKO was using his absence from the country to recut Magnificent Ambersons without Wells, ultimately cutting out an hour of the film and shooting a new ending contrary to Wells's original intent. 
The Magnificent Ambersons was released on July 10th, 1942, and it was another expensive failure, losing about $620,000 on a cost of $1.1 million. It's All True uh, was never completed, as Wells abandoned the film to try and save Magnificent Ambersons, and after the flop of Magnificent Ambersons, RKO cut his funding. As Journey into Fear entered post-production, Wells was informed that he was being fired by RKO and that his Mercury Theater production team would be forced to leave the studio, with the editing of Journey into Fear completed without Wells' involvement. That film ended up losing $190,000. The total losses that RKO suffered at the hands of these three Orson Welles productions altogether added up to about $2 million. And the studio's bleak outlook led to its stars abandoning it, including Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, Fred Astaire, and Ginger Rogers, all leaving the studio to either go to other studios or become freelancers. On July 17th, 1942, George Schaefer tendered his resignation. And uh, Charles Kerner, who was the head of the theater chain part of RKO, was brought in to replace him. Kerner's motto was showmanship in place of genius. <laughs> so the studio needed a hit. Uh, it needed movies that could be made cheaply and yet turn a profit. Kerner uh, found his inspiration on how to do this in the success of Universal's The Wolfman, which had made a million dollars on a budget of $180,000. And he decided to start a B-movie horror unit at the studio to produce quick, cheap, sensational fright flicks to drum up profits. The man chosen to lead this new horror unit would be producer Val Luton. Born Vladimir Ivanovich Leventon in Yalta in 1904, then part of the Russian Empire, to moneylender Max Hofschneider and writer Anna Leventon, he was the nephew of famous Broadway actress and notorious lesbian Alla Natsimova. Going down in history as notorious lesbian. Uh, Alla Natsimova, who was born Merrim Ides Leventon. In 1909, Anna left Hofschneider and immigrated with her two children to the United States, where they lived with Natsimova, anglicizing their name to Luton, while Vladimir was shortened to Val. Anna got a job writing films, while Val took to journalism. However, he lost his job as a newspaper reporter when his newspaper discovered he had completely fabricated one of his stories. He went on to attend Columbia University, studying journalism, and after graduation he wrote novels, nonfiction, poetry, and short stories, including a piece for Weird Tales in 1930 called The Begita, as we mentioned earlier. His biggest success as a novelist, as Sarah said, was 1932's No Bed of Her Own, which was adapted into the film No Man of Her Own later that same year. Meanwhile, his mother got wind that producer David O. Selznick was looking for Russian-American writers to write a treatment for a potential adaptation of Terrace Bulbas. She recommended her son, and while the film was never made, Selznick took a liking to Luton and hired him on as a publicist, story editor, and all-around right-hand man. His first on... What, what about Selznick's left hand? His first on-screen credit came with Selznick's production of A Tale of Two Cities for MGM in 1935. He wrote the Storming of the Bastille sequence of the movie, 
as well as serving as production manager of the second unit that filmed those sequences. Directing the second unit was a young French filmmaker named Jacques Tourneur. Born in Paris, France the same year as Luton, he was the son of French film director Maurice Tourneur. At the age of 10, uh, he moved to the United States with his father when his father's career expanded to Hollywood. Maurice Turner's final work in Hollywood was from 1926 to 27 on The Mysterious Island, an MGM Jules Verne adaptation that was held up due to the introduction of sound, and thus much of Turner's footage for the movie was reshot for sound by new director Lucien Hubbard, with the film finally being released in 1929. After being removed from Mysterious Island, Maurice Turner returned to France, while Jacques remained in Hollywood, doing short films and second unit work, such as the Tale of Two Cities sequence that introduced him to Luton. Tourneur began directing feature films in 1939, primarily B-crime movies for MGM, until that studio dropped him from their roster of directors in 1941. Meanwhile, Luton was still working for Selznick. He tried to talk his boss out of adapting Gone with the Wind, calling the novel unfilmable. <laughs> Given the job of punching up the script, Luton added the famous crane shot that reveals hundreds of dead and wounded soldiers at the Atlanta depot, intending to sabotage the film with a clearly impossible shot. Uh, but it was pulled off and became an iconic cinematic moment. <laughs> However, Luton was becoming dissatisfied with working under Selznick, a hard job with little recognition and no room for advancement. So, when RKO came looking for a new producer, it was a perfect opportunity. Luton had learned how to make movies watching Selznick, now here was a chance to make them himself. Kerner brought Luton on at a salary of $250 a week, which is about four grand today. A week? Mm-hmm. Wow. And he named him the head of RKO's new horror unit. He would have to follow three rules. Each film had to come in under $150,000, each film had to run under 75 minutes long, and Luton would have to work from titles created by the studio's marketing department. How feasible is it to make a movie under that amount of money? Uh, to put it this way, we've never seen a PRC movie that cost more than $100,000. So it's not unfeasible, it's just that's putting Quality. you... Yes, that's putting you in... PRC territory. No, $150,000 is putting you in, like, monogram territory. Okay. Poverty Road territory. Exactly. The first of the titles that the studio marketing department handed to Luton was Cat People, uh, which was intended to cash in on the success of Wolfman. Luton hired DeWitt Bodine to write the screenplay, adapting elements from his own short story, The Begita. Bodine had been working in RKO's story department since the 1930s, but Cat People would be his first credited film work. Although Luton would write the final draft of the script himself, he took no credit, allowing Bodine the sole honor. To direct, Luton brought on Jacques Tourneur, for whom Cat People would be his fifth film, and Nicholas Musaraka was chosen as the cinematographer. Musaraka was an Italian immigrant who had gotten his start in the film industry as a chauffeur, but by the 1940s he was an experienced cinematographer with work going back to the 1920s. In 1940, he shot the film Stranger on the Third Floor for RKO, considered one of the landmarks in the development of the visual style of film noir. Shooting on Cat People ran four weeks from July 28th 
to August 21st, 1942. Uh, They used sets left over from previous higher-budget productions, such as The Grand Staircase from The Magnificent Ambersons. (laughs) With hardly any budget, the team came to the decision to avoid actually creating a monster, a cat person, which would likely have been unconvincing-looking, and instead make their horror out of shadows and what the audience doesn't see, uh, what's either in the darkness or off-camera. Additionally, rather than set the movie in a far-off time and place, it would be set in contemporary New York, which would save money, but also make the story more relatable and immediate to audiences. In the lead role was Simone Simon, who was born in France in 1910. She had initially planned on being a fashion designer, but she was spotted in Paris at a restaurant by director Victor Turjansky and was cast in a film. Her first film role was in 1931, but her star rose very quickly, and in 1935, Daryl Zanuck brought her to Hollywood. Unfortunately, Marlena Dietrich had kind of given her a bad piece of advice. She told the newly immigrated Simone that a star is only as important as she makes herself. And this resulted in the young Simone, who knew very little English, acting out uh, like a prima donna on set. um, And generally like being very difficult on purpose, because she thought that's like what a female star was supposed to do. And this led to her being fired by Zanuck and replaced. She made a few more Hollywood films after that, um, but they all kind of had bad luck. There was a few cases where she was either um, sick and had to leave production midway through and was replaced. Um, Either way, none of these movies did particularly well at the box office or earn her much critical notice. So she returned to France, working with director Jean Renoir on the film The Human Beast in 1938. She fled France with the Nazi invasion and returned to America, desperate for work, and finding Val Luton, desperate for actresses. Uh, Her Jewish parents would later die in a concentration camp. Opposite Simone is Kent Smith, a reliable RKO contract player who had appeared in dozens of classic films uh, throughout the 1940s, and Jane Randolph, who had come to Hollywood in 1939 at 25 years old looking to become an actress, but hadn't received any featured roles until she signed with RKO in 1942. Uh, The final star of the picture I want to talk about is another reliable RKO contract hand, Tom Conway. He was born in 1904 in St. Petersburg in the Russian Empire, but his family fled to England at the beginning of the Russian Revolution, where he and his brother, George Sanders, were educated. And yes, I said his name was Tom Conway, It was Tom Sanders at the time he was living in England with his brother George. Both brothers became actors, and both went to Hollywood. And it was decided on a coin flip that Tom would be the one to change his name from Sanders to Conway, as they believed that they would get more roles and not just be thought of as the other one's brother if they had two distinct names. Um, I mean, that's likely. Yeah, that was a good choice. The two both became reliable, well-respected character actors, uh, often playing sort of um, suave British types. George Sanders, however, had the better luck right away. Uh, Both got lots of work, um, but George Sanders is probably the 
better known one today. In 1939, Sanders took over the role of Simon Templar from Lewis Hayward in RKO's The Saint series. Sanders would make five appearances as The Saint before the author of the original novel series got in a dispute with RKO, leading to the studio creating the new character, The Falcon, who would also be played by Sanders. Sanders made three films as the Falcon before deciding that he was disinterested in the part. So, in 1942's The Falcon's Brother, Sanders, <laughs> Sanders' character is killed off and replaced by his brother, who is played by Tom Conway, Sanders' real-life brother. Yes. This would prove to be Conway's big break as an actor, and he would ultimately appear in ten Falcon films although he had only appeared in the first one, The Falcon's Brother, at the time Cat People was being made. A minor but highly memorable role in the film is played by Elizabeth Russell, who we saw as Bela Lugosi's wife in The Corpse Vanishes. Mm-hmm. So after three days of shooting, RKO production supervisor Lou Ostrow was extremely unhappy with the rushes that he was seeing, as they did not seem anything like what horror movies had been made before, or what RKO had wanted when they decided to make a movie called Cat People. Yeah. Ostro wanted Turner fired, but Luton appealed to studio boss Kerner, who liked what he saw and overruled Ostro. When Ostro insisted that there actually be a panther in the scenes where one might be menacing the characters, Luton had Turner shoot the panther entirely in shadows, <laughs> rendering it basically invisible. In order to finish the film on time... Two crews worked simultaneously, one at night with the animals and one during the day with the main cast. Cat People uh, premiered at the Rialto Theater in New York City on December 5th, 1942, accompanied by a massive marketing campaign on part of RKO, which played up the sensational aspects that were potentially in the movie. <laughs> Initial reviews were mixed, with critics largely looking down on the film because it was horror, and then since there was no monster or any of the expected genre tropes, also concluding that it must not be very good horror at that. Ooh, these guys need to get their heads out of their butts. <laughs> however, it was a massive box office success. It ran for 13 weeks, which was an immense theatrical run for a film of this type, and it ultimately grossed $8 million on its $134,000 budget. Take that, Orson Welles. <laughs> it was the highest grossing horror picture since the original Frankenstein. Nice. RKO went from having a $2 million deficit to a $6 million profit, and Kerner ally Floyd Odlum bought a controlling interest in RKO out from the Rockefellers and RCA, who sold off their interests in the company to him, leading to RCA boss David Sarnoff leaving the movie studio that, basically, he had created. Meanwhile, Val Luton's success meant that his horror division could continue with little studio interference. That's quite the story. Mm -hmm. It's quite the journey. Yes. Oof. Um, well, how are we watching this amazing movie? So today, Cat People is available with its sequel, Curse of the Cat People, on DVD. It's also available with all the RKO horror pictures in the Val Luton Horror Collection DVD box set, or on Blu-ray as part of the Criterion Collection. Okay. It's also available on YouTube and Google Play. 
Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, and I really recommend that you do, you can check out our YouTube playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Cat People from 1942, directed by Jacques Tourneur. See you on the other side, everybody. Creatures of the Night, we just finished watching Cat People from 1942, directed by Jacques Tourneur. Ooh, ben, what did you think? It's it's very good, you know? Um, How does it hold up now that we've kind of seen every horror movie before this? Um, well, that's, that's maybe something I'd like to talk about a little later. One thing that, that I will say is that horror can be a bit like comedy, and we've said that actually in a lot of episodes, but specifically in the sense that, like, there are certain things that you never can experience twice. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are certain jokes that will always hit you super hard the first time you ever hear them, and, you know, you aren't going to laugh as uproariously the next couple thousand times you hear them. Same with horror. There are certain, like, scary moments in a horror movie that can just really get you the first time and aren't going to do that the second time because you know they're coming. It doesn't make the movie bad or any less good when you see it that second or third time. It's just the fact of you can't have that first experience again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, the first time I saw this movie, there's a jump scare in it. The first Jump scare ever, actually. Yes. Um, and I think I screamed or, like, jumped, definitely, mm-hmm. when I first saw it. And this time, I didn't react in the same way. Yeah. Um, and I started to worry that maybe the film wasn't as good as I remembered. But I kind of came upon the same conclusion as you did, that, like, no, it's still very good. <laughs> you just can't replicate that first experience. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about the story of Cat People and, and what happens in it. Sure. So the movie is focused around Irina Dubrovna, who is a Serbian immigrant who is working as a fashion designer in America, which is kind of cool given that Simon Simon's first like career goal mm-hmm. was to do that. So yeah. that's neat. Irina is fascinated by this black panther at this local municipal zoo. At the zoo, she meets Oliver Reed, who is a boat architect. Yeah, a shipwright. He he designs ships. Okay. Um, Irina and Oliver start kind of developing a friendship and a bit of a uh, dating relationship. And one day, he's over for tea, and Oliver asks about a statue Irina has of who she reveals is the Serbian King John. Um, he is posed on a horse with a lance, and the lance has punctured a cat. And the cat repre- punctured has stabbed? Impaled. Impaled. That's the word. Um, impaled a cat, and the cat represents evil. 
and she explains that, you know, her village was a good Christian village, and then... The Mamluks. Uh, Mamluks, which I looked up, are Muslims. Yeah, it's a specific, like, reference to... We don't have time for the history. It's basically just Muslims. Yeah. Um, invaded the village and, like, the country, and then these good Christian folks, through time, turned to witchcraft. And then King John came in, killed all of the evil people, and the most wise and wicked of the villagers escaped into the mountains, and from these wicked people have descended the cat people. Mm-hmm. And we learn later, Irina believes she is one of these cat people. Yes. So dating's going pretty good, and they plan to get married. Their wedding reception is held at this Serbian restaurant, and as everyone's kind of celebrating, this cat-like looking woman, Serbian woman, walks over and asks Irina, my sister, only in Russian, but with that kind of question tone. And this really unsettles Irina. She does the holy cross. She genuflects. Genuflects. And as Irina and Oliver get home, she asks for him to be patient um, regarding sex and any kind of intimacy at all. She's not ready. And Oliver knows that her fear is if she gives in to sexuality, if she has sex, if she kisses someone, um, she worries that she'll turn into a panther and kill them. At one point they talk about like it's either passion or... They also talk about jealousy or hatred. So it, it kind of just sounds like any, like, strong emotional... Um, it's like with the Hulk. Right. You know, if he gets too excited in any capacity, he turns into the Hulk. Sure. She turns into a panther. Right. Eventually, her behavior and this belief escalates that Oliver persuades her to see psychiatrist Dr. Judd. Dr. Judd kind of... You know, he hypnotizes her, um, he comes to the conclusion that, you know, this belief is silly, it's just a result of childhood trauma, we'll figure this out. Yeah, the specific childhood trauma is interesting, because it's, it's, her dad died in a mysterious accident off in the woods. Yeah, before she was born, and because she didn't have her dad around, the kids in the village called her mom a cat person, or cat lady, whatever, and so Irina grew up believing that she's also a cat person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. During this time, Oliver and his co-worker Alice are getting closer, and Irina grows jealous. After seeing Oliver and Alice have coffee after work, Irina follows Alice, and we get kind of our first experience in the movie of, like, Irina maybe being a panther? It's our first, like, real horror scene, is the thing. Like, it's, yeah. it's basically just been... A relationship drama up to mm -hmm. this point. So Alice is heading home, and it's down this really quiet street, and it's all dark except for um, pools of light from street lamps. And we hear her walking, her heels clip-clopping, and we hear Irina clip-clopping behind her, and then um, eventually Irina's stop, and then that's when things get like really eerie. Alice starts thinking something's behind her. She seems to sense that she's being stalked. And just as we start to hear some growls, a bus pulls up, and uh, it, that's the jump scare. Climb on, sister. Are you riding with me or ain't you? You look as if you'd seen a ghost. Did you see it? 
Yeah, it's it's sort of hard to get across in words, but the sound design is is quite excellent. Yeah. Um, we also see that um, there have been some sheep killed at the zoo, <laughs> and there are some muddy paw prints that we see eventually turn into shoe prints. Mm-hmm. Specifically healed shoe prints, too. Yes. When Irina comes home after this, uh, she has mud on her shoes and on her dress, and she you know, goes straight to bed, basically. She does cry in the bath because of um, thinking that her husband's cheating on her, um, and also possibly maybe having just turned into a panther and turned back. Who knows? Um, and then we get a bit of a dream sequence where um, <laughs> Dr. Judd appears as King John, um, and, uh, you know, there's, like, cats everywhere. But the main point is she's dreaming about the key to the panther's cage, which the next day she steals. Oliver, Alice, and Irina go to a museum together because for some reason Oliver thought that, you know, this will be fine. Oliver and Alice are kind of having their own, like, geek moments about these model boats and Irina feels left out. So she leaves and then eventually follows Alice home. Alice has a pool at her apartment building, which is pretty cool. And so she decides to go for a swim. And as she's getting changed and getting ready to go into the pool, she again feels like an animal is stalking her. Um, There's a lot of shadows. She hears things in like the echoey room of the locker room and in the pool. So she jumps in the pool to try to like get away and we see shadows moving and growls. So it sounds like there's a black panther in the room with her. Just as it sounds like the panther roars to pounce, Alice screams, and they echo, and it sounds really awesome. Again, another great case of sound design. And Irina turns on the light, um, asking, what's wrong? Yeah. What has you so scared, Alice? Um, With kind of a sly smile on her face. Also, her robe is torn to shreds. Um, Yes, when she gets out of the pool afterwards, she discovers her robe has been torn to shreds. Yeah. After an appointment with Dr. Judd, Irina comes home to Oliver and says that she's no longer afraid of this neurosis. But Oliver sits her down and tells her, you know, I think I've fallen in love with Alice. So, you know, I'll be a gentleman about this. I'll give you a divorce, because at the time women couldn't just divorce people. Um, Irina's definitely not okay with this. They decide that... They, as in Oliver and Alice, they are having an appointment with Dr. Judd, and they decide that institutionalizing Irina is the best option rather than just divorcing her. Because if Oliver divorces Irina, she's, you know, he no longer has any ties to her, no responsibility, but she's clearly unwell. Um, If she's institutionalized, he can support her. Um, He and Alice can't get married, but he decides that institutionalization is kind of the best option because then Irina will at least be taken care of. Yeah, it's not presented as like, we're going to throw her into the nutty bin to get rid of her. It's it's the options are, you can divorce her and be with Alice, but then like she'll be on her own and have no help from anyone. But he feels really guilty about the whole situation, um, so he feels like he is responsible for taking care of her. So he agrees to have her institutionalized. Yeah. So Dr. Judd is going to meet up with everyone at Irina's apartment, um, to kind of do an interview about it. Irina doesn't show up, so Oliver and Alice decide to go back to the office, and Dr. Judd maneuvers his way to be 
in the apartment waiting for Irina. And um, they're cornered in the office by an animal stalking them, which they believe to be Irina. When Irina comes home, Dr. Judd is waiting in her apartment, and in a very unethical move (laughs) to try to show her that her fears are only a delusion, her fear of, if I kiss someone, I'll turn into a panther, he kisses Irina, and then he's attacked and killed by an animal just off screen. Yes. We see Irina injured and running to the zoo, and with her key, she lets out the black panther. It jumps on her and then runs off and gets hit by a car, and Irina dies either from being attacked by the panther or from wounds relating to the fight with Dr. Judd. And when her body is found by Oliver and Alice, it appears to be a panther Mm -hmm. in her coat. And the movie ends with Oliver saying, she never lied to us. The end. So one of the things I think that makes this movie work is the story takes place over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And the movie does some just very subtle work to let us know that without, you know, having to have title cards come up that say, like, six months later, or, you know, people have really weirdly um, expository dialogue, like, well, it's been five weeks since I last talked to you, or something, where when the movie starts, there are leaves on the ground, and it's fall. By the time Oliver and Irina are getting married, it's snowing. And by the end of the movie, it's not snowing anymore. You know, it's, it's been some time. And I think that's important because if you didn't know that, this movie's 75 minutes long. In a movie of that brevity, to have, you know, two characters fall in love, meet cute, get married, then the other guy just fall in love with another woman and then want to divorce and stuff, like, it would all seem very... Frivolous. Very quick and, like, too fast for these emotions to develop. And it would also make Oliver look like a huge heel. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that's most effective about this movie is everyone in this movie is, in their own ways, like a good person, with the potential exception of Dr. Judd, and they all are doing the best they can in an impossible situation. Mm -hmm. Like, Alice is in love with Oliver first, and Oliver is in love with Irina, and Irina's in love with Oliver, but she can't give him the intimacy she feels he deserves. And he puts up with is like the wrong word, but he is patient with her dilemma for Mm -hmm. like a long time. And then it becomes clear that Alice is in love with him. They work together, they share interests, and she isn't the handful that Irina is. And the thing about Oliver is there's a a very good scene where he explains that, like, he is white bread. Like, he's never had a problem in his life before. So he doesn't really know how to help Irina. Like, he wants to, but he just has no capacity to do so. And it's so much easier for him to just be with Alice. And he's tried with Irina, and it just hasn't been working. So it's a very tragic scene, you know, when, when she says, like, oh, you know, I think I'm finally over this. I think... I think we're good. And he's like, you know, it's too late. Like, I waited, and I think I'm in love with Alice. Like, that's the kind of thing where if if you didn't, if the movie didn't do the work to tell you this is happening over a longer period of time, would look really douchey, right? Definitely. I think, like, everyone, like you said, except for Dr. Judd, is 
allowed some form of complexity. Yes. Like, Alice, I think, like, she and Oliver are pretty much best friends. Yeah. And I think she kind of knows that she loves him even when he first starts dating Ivina. Sure, yeah, you get the feeling like she's maybe had a crush on him for a while. Yeah, but she's like, oh, he's with someone else, like, I'll stay out of the way. And everything just, like, just kind of happens out of their hands. Like, it's all kind of accidental. Yeah, the thing about this movie is that, like the best dramas, all the characters are being put into impossible dilemmas. And like the best tragedies, there's really only one way for those dilemmas to resolve. Mm-hmm. And like the best horrors, you don't know how much trouble you're in until it's far too late. Yeah, that's, that's a good pull quote right there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, one of the, the striking things about Cat People is how it's basically just a drama for so long. It almost feels incongruous when the supernatural stuff does finally rear its head. It's set in such a grounded, believable world that it's in fact easier to believe that Irina is mad, that the legends of her people are just superstitions. Like, if this movie took place in her small village of Serbia and Oliver was like the outsider who came there, I think it would be more in line with the Universal movies. And then, like, the idea that the myth is true would just be taken for granted by an audience. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't get this the first time I watched this, but now, seeing it a second time, it, it felt a little bit reminiscent of Dracula, in the sense we have, like, old world coming to new world. Sure. That I, I, I thought was just kind of interesting. And you're totally right. Like, I was thinking about this movie with Wolfman, mm-hmm. where Wolfman is set in some other place. Yeah. It's not Manhattan, you know, it's not, like, down the street from the municipal zoo. There's a sense of, like, oh, I can put some separation here. That's a fantasy setting. There's, this is my own backyard mm-hmm. kind of deal. Yeah, for large parts of it, this movie is basically the story of an unhappy woman who appears to have a disorder that prevents her from consummating her relationship. To me, it feels a lot like, say, an asexual person who's in a romantic relationship, right? Yeah. And the thing that's striking about Irina is she wants to be what her husband wants her to be. And in those early phases of the film, the thing about the movie that makes it really um, striking to me is that it's a remarkably honest depiction of like a person suffering from mental illness, which is what they think Irina has, mm-hmm. um, specifically depression and their, you know, that person's struggles socializing normally and also the struggles that their neurotypical partner has in relating to them. Right. I think like, what always kind of shocks me with this movie is just how open and non non-judgmental this film is about the relationship between Irina and Oliver. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like, Oliver isn't like, this amazing guy for putting up with it, or being overly patient, and Irina isn't like, demonized for not being able to fulfill the marriage. Right. You know what I mean? Like to fully be there for her partner. Yeah. And like, we see that she's, you know, in essence, a sweet 
good-natured person. Mm-hmm. Um, she just can't give her husband that physical intimacy, and that makes her unhappy because she wishes she could. But she still wants their relationship to work, mm-hmm. right? It's not something where she's being overly unreasonable, where it's like, well, you'll just have to put up with the fact that this is the thing. Like, no, she she wants to make this work, and she's trying to make it work, and she's looking for solutions. She doesn't want to be um, a burden, on Oliver is like a big thing that strikes true about um, people in in relationships like that. Um, and the like the discussion of like what to do about it of of Irina going to go see Doctor Judd. Yeah, and I think I think the thing is that the movie took a interesting track here in making all the characters essentially likable, or or at least have essentially a motivation that was sympathetic and relatable. Yeah. Um, because, you know, as we've said, Oliver is basically also a good guy. He's supportive of Irina. Uh, he loves her despite her flaws. He's open to her getting help and seeing her fix her problems. And supporting. Yes. Yes. Why that feels unique is I feel like it would be very easy to have Oliver be dismissive, Mm -hmm. to have her say, I think I'm a cat person and her, him to say, you're crazy. This is stupid. I'm going to go fuck Alice. Like, have him be kind of a boor. Have him be more um, unlikable. So that, like, oh, we're more on her side or whatever. We've seen examples in past horror movies of mental illness just used as, like, an extreme plot device. Right. I'm thinking specifically of Night Monster. Right. Where, yeah, it's just, like, used almost to just move the plot along despite how extreme the movement across the chessboard might be. Um, and we know in the future we have horror movies where the mental illness is what's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Or, like, the... Wait, did that make sense? Yeah, it, it, where it's the source of the fear, right? Like, yeah. psycho. Yeah. Um, the thing about Oliver and the way he deals with his dilemma with his wife here is that, like, he's doing all the right things. He just has two problems. The first is that for all his good intentions, he's got a nice neurotypical girl at work who loves him and shares his interests and is, like, a lot easier to be with than Irina. So that causes a lot of problems because it's going to be... That's the fuel for Irina's jealousy, right? Mm -hmm. His second problem is that she isn't crazy. Yeah. Like, the, the thing that's an interesting back and forth here is that she really is a cat person. So on the one level... They think she has a mental disorder. And the way this movie talks about mental disorders is it's very honest to what it's really like. It's not the kind of um, over-the-top sensationalized, you know, person in a straight jacket with, like, crayon drawings on the walls talking about, like, you know, fava beans and a nice Chianti kind of movie version of insanity. But... She isn't crazy. She actually is a cat person. So we have this weird relationship where it's like, well, is Irina's problem in this movie... And can you say it's an allegory for mental illness when in the movie they just think it's a mental illness? Like, the, the subtext is text, you mm. know, in a way, but, like, that's still not really what's happening. It, like, you get what I'm trying to say? Yeah, it's... Honestly, it's a nice out, Right. For the movie, because now we don't have to worry, like, <laughs> me personally at least, don't I don't have to worry about this movie being ableist. You know, it's 
a supernatural explanation rather than just crazy person be crazy. Right, yeah. It's it's it lets them have their cake and eat it too, but in a good way. Exactly. Not like last movie. Yeah, that's the that's exactly what it is, right? Like it's this movie handles the is she mentally ill or is she really a lycanthrope thing so much better than Undying Monster from last week. You always got the feeling watching, like, we couldn't figure out watching Undying Monster whether it was werewolf with the crazy thing tacked on or crazy with the werewolf thing tacked on, but either way, the two didn't feel integrated. And here, it all feels like one story, right? Yeah, yeah. The movie's so grounded and truthful and honest about its characters that when the horror part of the movie finally arrives, it manages to be genuinely unsettling. Mm Mm-hmm. Because of that, because we've been in the real world for so long. And I think what's kind of interesting here is, like, there's no shift in terms of its lighting style. Right. Um, when it goes from drama to horror. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all kind of stylistically lit mm-hmm. um, in w- what will be called film noir um, in a few years. So it has that film noir aesthetic, but it's also a very, like, I think that's so interesting given that this is a bit of a German expressionist um, subject matter Mm. in terms of psychological horror. Right. And when we do have the moments of, is there a creature there, that's when it gets its most shadowy, most moody, most German expressionist. Yeah, I mean, the big thing in this movie is it's the first movie to kind of do something that I think gets done a lot in horror from this point on, especially cheap horror, Yeah, which is when you don't have the monster, don't show the monster, right? If you don't have the money to do a monster, don't show it. Put in a lot of shadows, let the audience fill in the blanks with their own imagination. And it makes the transition from sort of the drama to the horror really interesting because it's so subtle Mm-hmm. That for a long time, it's actually ambiguous whether anything is happening at all. Um, you can kind of, you know, despite the fact that it's like you have the shots of like the shoe prints and stuff, you can still convince yourself for a very long time in this movie, like you normally do on a dark night uh, when you're alone, that, oh, it was all a trick of the light or, you know, it was actually nothing. Yeah, my my imagination is just going haywire right now. Yeah, you're put in the... The smart thing about this movie is you're put in the same boat as Alice in scenes where she's being threatened, like the Central Park scene with the bus or the swimming pool scene, right? We're not with Irina slinking about in the shadows tracking her. We're with Alice and we can't see what's going on. And when nothing happens you know, you kind of go, oh, well, I guess it was just my mind playing tricks on me. Mm-hmm. And it helps it make sense that it takes a while for Alice to be like, no, I think something's actually going on here, right? It's so much harder in horror movies where if the audience has already seen the monster and the characters are like, I don't think there's a real werewolf. You're sitting there being like, yeah, of course there's a real werewolf, Ned. Like, but in... <laughs> God damn it, Ned. In this movie, you can understand, like, the reticence, right? Because you're mm-hmm. seeing it from their point of view and they didn't see anything. And it makes it actually kind of shocking when the characters finally acknowledge that they can also see the monster. Like, in the scene um, where they're at the office and the panther's there, that's the first time the audience gets to see that the panther 
is there. It's the first time we really see the panther, even though it's all in shadow. But still, when the characters actually acknowledge that they can see it too, you're like, oh, okay, I guess it's real then, right? Yeah. Um, I think what's interesting is, I thought about this when I kind of made the, that prior connection with Dracula. Mm. Um, a big problem that we had with Dracula was that it told rather than showed. Yes. Um, the show-don't-tell is a big thing with film in general. What's neat about cat people is I feel like it's like a bit of an obscure don't tell rather sure. than show because it's not quite it's showing you like like you're looking through wax paper you can kind right. of make it out but you can't yeah it is using film technique to tell its story mm-hmm. it's being visual even though it's not showing anything it's using sound and visuals to put us in that place we're not getting told these things by dialogue yes. this doesn't feel like a play mm-hmm. I don't think you could do cat people as a play. No. At least in the same way that they do it here. No, it would suck. Yeah. Um, the the thing that's you know interesting is even as late in the movie as that office scene, there's still the possibility that the panther we've been seeing is the zoo panther because Irina steals the key. And then we get the panther in the office and, and all these things. And it's like, okay, so is it just the panther escaped from the zoo and not Irina? And it's not until really, like, the final moments of the movie when she attacks Judd uh, and then goes to the zoo and we see that the panther's still in the cage. It hasn't left, despite the fact that she has taken the key. Um, that you know, it becomes obvious, no, it actually is her. She actually is transforming. Mm-hmm. And I think the realization that Irina was right, that she is, in fact, a werecat, um, it transforms the movie from a tragedy into a nightmare. A nightmare for whom? For everybody, right? Like, you're, there's Alice being stalked, and, and really, like, for the longest time, through no fault of her own, right? Like, Alice isn't some home wrecker, you know, as you said earlier. She's, you know, acknowledged, like, no, I'm going to stay out of it, like, you're married. But Irina feels that jealousy. But it's a nightmare for Irina, too, because, like, she is this thing that she doesn't want to be, right? And it's a nightmare for... Oliver, because he is in love with this woman that he can't ever really have a relationship with. It's a nightmare for Dr. Judd, who ends up dead. Um, you know, and Dr. <laughs> Does he deserve it, though? Dr. Judd's a really interesting character, because like, I think he's also complex. He's also multifaceted. Like, he's clearly like a pretty smart, professional psychiatrist. Um, he has a kind of professional detachment from caring about his clients, which was really common. At the time, that was the idea, like, you should be detached. Um, So he comes off a little cold. And I think his ego gets the better of him. That's why he feels he can, like, force himself on Irina. I don't think there's any threat of her being raped. But the fact that she clearly says that I do not want to be kissed by you, and he still does, means that he's crossing a boundary. But he thinks he's fine to do it because... In his mind, he's doing it as part of her treatment. Right, or at least that's what he would have said after the fact if she hadn't actually been a panther woman. Like, <laughs> the thing about, you know, we talked in the intro about, like, the way that mental health professionals abused, were, were like, used as a weapon against women. Um, and we talked about it in the context of, like, institutionalizing women who are difficult. But what we see with Dr. Judd is um, another different abuse of power, 
mm-hmm. which is, you know, abusing that power dynamic between um, doctor and patient and taking advantage of your patient romantically or sexually or whatever. Because who's going to believe her? She's crazy. Right, which is like, you know, a thing that happens. Yeah. Um, and here we see it. And yeah, I think I think the idea that he's doing this as part of her treatment would certainly have been the justification if uh, she hadn't then turned into a panther and mauled him to death. Yeah, I'm, I'm giving him the benefit of a doubt when I, when I describe his behavior mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's clear to me, though, that, like, he has fallen under her spell, as it were, or rather, like, developed a fascination for her that is beyond the professional. I think, for me, what always is just, like... Something I really appreciate about this movie, and something that is also just, like, still, even with the research, still a little shocking for me, given the time period, is that at the center of the movie, Irina is struggling with her sexuality. Right. Regardless of Panther Woman or not, she's, (laughs) I mean, like, I agree with you, I think she is a werecat, but... I mean, yeah, there's no doubt by the end of the movie. Yeah, um, but she's still, like figuring out her own sexuality, coming to terms with it, and the sympathy that both the other characters and the film give her regarding that. The fact that Oliver is trying to wait for her, um, it's just, it's very counter to other sexual female characters we've seen in, especially horror films, but films in general, because I think of this compared to Genuina or even Alvrauna. Yeah, I mean, I think that so I don't want to be dismissive of Val Luton and team, but I think one of the reasons why perhaps the movie is sympathetic of Irina is that her sexuality is reluctant. Um, Rather than the opposite. Right. She's not sexual. Like, like Genuina Alrana, like the, the typical horrific sexual woman is sexually dominant mm-hmm. and is, you know, sexually voracious and active. And that is seen as threatening to, like, traditional male ego. Um, and so that's why that gets characterized as monstrous. Whereas, like, yes, if Irina becomes sexual, she will turn into a literal monster and kill you. But, like, as a character, that's expressed as her being reluctant to be intimate, right? And so there's this sympathy for her because I think in that traditional reluctant to talk about sex, um, moralistic culture that you outlined at the beginning of the episode, we have more sympathy for a woman who wants to remain chaste, you know, than a woman who wants to screw around, right? Like, that's fair. Like, again, I don't mean to be taking anything away from what the movie's doing. I'm just trying to say that, like, there's a reason why the movie's, I think, permitted to have that kind of sympathy. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, but I think, like, because her struggles with it and her perceived mental illness are also given sympathy and space to exist, like, I think that the movie has a lot of empathy for people going through these types of struggles. Mm-hmm. I know you've kind of said that earlier about, like, how it depicts depression and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I don't know, it's, like, also just... The fact that she's given so much sympathy, given, like, how alienated she is with others um, of both her own culture, like, with the uh, other, like, Serbian woman. She doesn't even know that there is a Serbian restaurant in town. Like, she's completely, like, isolated 
Well, it's it's that thing about being an immigrant where you want to... Assimilate, it, but still, like... But still you're that person. Yeah. Right? Like, she still has... Like, she wants to get away from this Serbian heritage because it's the thing that's causing her, like, all this pain and suffering because it's her folkloric upbringing, right, that's causing the problem. But at the same time, she still has a statue of, like, King John of Serbia in her apartment, right? Like... It's a part of her, even though she doesn't want it to be. She wants to be American, but she won't let go of this Serbian past. She rejects it at the same time as not being able to get rid of it. And I think that's like a very um, relatable struggle for immigrants. Certainly, I think it points to like one of the reasons why I think the movie is so sympathetic to Irina, which is that Irina has a lot in common with Val Luton, mm-hmm. right? As um, an immigrant from Russia... Also, as like a dissatisfied artist, there's there's certainly like a feeling there that, she, you know, if anyone in the movie is the um, author stand-in, it's her, not Oliver Reed, right? Like who you'd think because he's the guy in the movie, but like, oh poor Oliver, you're just fine. <laughs> you know, it's and it's striking that the movie's willing to show some of the complexities of a character like Irina mm-hmm. because she's. As much as it is sympathetic to her, she is also allowed to be difficult. You know, she's allowed to, like, come home and kind of brush off her husband and go lock herself in her room and not be helpful, which is one of the things that you you kind of have to deal with if you have, like, a loved one who has depression or, like, other mental illness problems is that, like, sometimes they're their own worst enemy. Sometimes they aren't going to be helpful and they're going to be difficult um, and it's not maybe willful. It's just part of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's just it's refreshing to get a movie that's not only intelligently written, but is clearly intended for an adult audience, not in like the content warning sense, but just that like <laughs> the movie's themes and topics are aimed at adults and communicated at an adult level. There aren't any like mad scientists here. There's no insane plot holes that just are being filled over with an attitude of like, oh, it's just for kids, or oh, it's just horror. Like, it's a mature story. Yeah, if you think about, like, this movie and where RKO and Val Luton go in, like, coming horror films compared to where Universal's going to go, yeah. it's it it's like the difference between, like, a kids' movies and mature movies. Um, a lot has been said about the film's major set pieces over the years. The Central Park thing with the bus, mm-hmm. um, the swimming pool scene, the panther at the office. We've already talked about them uh, at length already. And it just feels like you could take each one of those scenes and like break them down and analyze them for hours. I'm not really sure what to add other than to say like the cinematography in this movie, if you haven't realized it yet, is gorgeous. Yes. Um, it's probably some of the best we've ever seen on the show. But the most striking thing for me is that maybe this is the first time in like a very long time, maybe since Old Dark House, that it's felt like one of these movies is trying to scare us. Yeah. And not just showing us scary things and hoping that we'll do the rest of the work for them. Yeah, I think um, part of that is the fact that it doesn't just show us a monster. Right. You know, because when you just show a monster you just show the monster creeping up against who you want to threaten versus like 
putting us in the character's shoes in the moment of being threatened? Are we actually seeing what we think we're seeing? Yeah. You've kind of already pointed that out earlier. Yeah. I think, like, what I thought you were going to say with bringing up Old Dark House is it feels like there's a world that exists outside of this movie. Right. It feels like we're coming in just happenstance into these people's lives. They have lives before and after this. Right. Except for maybe Ivina. Right. And Dr. Chad. It's funny because we'll see both those characters again in different movies. Yeah. Um, The thing about it is this movie is using the techniques of film, how film can work on someone's mind, the way that you can use lighting and camera angles and editing and music and sound Sound design. design, all of those things to affect someone's mind and scare them versus just kind of showing you something scary and hoping that your mind will do everything else. It's they're they're doing the exact opposite thing, really. This versus like every other horror movie. Um <laughs> where, you know, a universal movie is showing you a picture of a monster and hoping your brain will be afraid of it. And this is making you afraid and hoping that your brain will fill in the picture of the monster. Mm-hmm. Right? Which I think is a more effective thing, because not everyone's going to be scared of a guy in a furry suit. The last thing I will say, since we haven't talked about them at all, is that uh, everyone in the cast is great. Yes. Um, I love how Simone Simone can somehow put, like, a cat-like grin on her face. Like, when she's pawing at the canary, mm. she looks like a curious cat who is going too far. Like, she does such a good job. What's really impressive is her ability to play all the various aspects of Irina and make them feel like one person. She's the Irina who's happy when she's around Oliver. She's the Irina who's depressed because she can't be what he wants her to be. She's the Irina who's angry and frustrated at people who don't believe her. She's the Irina who's jealous of Alice. She's you know, the Irina who doesn't want to be a cat person, but also the Irina who, like... Enjoys the power that comes with it. Exactly. Um, Tom Conway makes um, a really convincing sleaze ball with, like, a veneer of sophistication over top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other person who is really great in this cast is Elizabeth Russell, who yeah. is the Serbian woman who comes up to... Uh, Irina in the restaurant, um, because she is amazingly memorable for having, like, one One... line of dialogue and maybe, like, 30 seconds worth of screen time. Yeah, not even. Um... Like, you you will recognize her face. Like, if you've seen this movie, and then you see any other movie that she's in, you'll be like, oh, I know that face. Yeah, and even in her, just her line delivery, um, of, like, asking my sister, Mm -hmm. like, part of it is, like, hopeful, and the other part is kind of, like, a bit of a statement rather than a question. Yeah, like, it's, 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 she's, she's at the same time, she's, like, asking, basically, like, are you one of us, while at the same time, basically accusing her, are, you're one of us. Yeah. Right? Like, it's an accusation and a question at the same time. It also is, like, just a greeting, like, it's, hey, hello, how are ya, um, But at the same time, it's also, like, a weird, like, you get the same feeling from people who have, like, a secret code to get into, like, a secret club, right? It has that same tone of, like, I think you're, I think you're a me. Are you a me? 
You're like me. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's, it's re- she's really good. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's rank. We rank him? Yeah. Okay. Well, we definitely... The last two movies we have not ranked. This right. movie we are ranking. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. So this is definitely better than Old Dark House, yeah? Because for me, really the only question for me here is, is this better or worse than Jekyll and Hyde? Okay. That's, for me, that's the only question. I think this is better than Old Dark House. Um, primarily because Old Dark House is still got, like, a couple of pinky toes in the realm of comedy. Yeah, a couple pinky toes. But it's also, like, what's neat about Old Dark House is how it it establishes that trope of an Old Dark House, um, yet also gives such life into it, like, such electricity. Oh, for into sure. It. And that isn't really replicated in any of the rip-offs or anything like that. No. And it takes that trope and makes it a trope, too. I think that's why there's such life in it. Because we've seen houses that are old and dark in horror movies, but Old Dark House makes it an old, dark house, you know? Yeah. Versus, like, Cat People, which is definitely reviving the horror genre a little bit in the sense that there's no horror tropes in here except for maybe the lighting. Or another way of looking at it is this movie is full of horror tropes that just didn't exist before this movie. Yeah. Like, like there's a reason why, like, there's a specific type of jump scare. Like, you talked about this movie inventing the jump scare with the, uh, the bus that comes in at the Central Park. That's not just inventing the jump scare. It's, like, a specific type of jump scare. Because to use a Luton bus, which is the name of this particular type of jump scare, is to have a jump scare that turns out to be nothing. That's... This what this movie's inventing. Yeah, um, yeah, that's what I was getting to. That for like sure. this is reinvigorating the horror genre as well. Um, what's neat is that, like, what's neat about Old Dark House is it took something that already existed and just like pumped life into it. Right. Um, versus this, where it's almost like whole new tools. Right. I think another interesting difference between the two of them, though, is you talked about both movies having that sense of like the characters exist outside of the realm of the movie. The thing about Old Dark House is Old Dark House is about a bunch of normal people who get sidetracked into the horror world because that whole house and the family in it is some Adams Family shit, right? Mm-hmm. This movie is about a bunch of normal people for whom the horror world comes com- to them. Exactly, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think um, we can definitely say that this is better than Old Dark House. I don't know about Jekyll and Hyde, though. Or Jekyll and Hyde, as I should say. Right. Because, like, here's the thing. Okay. With Jekyll and Hyde and Cat People, we have a similar core theme about sexuality. How people are dealing with it. And and identity, too. Yes. With people who have basically two sides of their existence. Mm-hmm. So... I'm going to stick with sexuality, though, because that's what—that's the argument I have prepared. Okay, sure. <laughs> um, Jekyll is struggling with sexuality and having that healthy outlet of it, of even, like, a healthy demonstration of that love to his fiancée. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a very, like, healthy, normal thing he wants to do with his fiancée, and he's just not allowed to do it. Mm-hmm. Irina is kind of what happens when that sexuality becomes 
becomes fully repressed into a neurosis and obsession. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting is with Jekyll and Hyde, he creates the outlet for it by allowing that side of himself just to completely be free. And that becomes horrifying with what else is repressed and what else comes out with that. It's not saying that sex or sexuality is inherently bad, but that the capacity for evil is in all of us. Whereas with Irina, like, I, I feel pity that she's not able to fully express this side of herself, but it's not a dual personality in the same way, because in the case of Irina, we don't have that same kind of fear. Um, her double life is a supernatural heritage. Yeah, she's cursed, is yeah. the difference, right? Like, No, that's the next movie. Right. But, like, <laughs> But yeah. it's, a, it's a more isolated case. I think in the case of, like... And this is speaking for me, who is, like, a third or fourth generation immigrant. Mm. Um, like, I consider myself Canadian. I don't consider myself as, like, an immigrant from Prussia or whatever right. my family was. I think that could this kind of distinction I'm making might feel differently for someone who was a recent immigrant. Um, the fear of, like their heritage catching up with them or othering themselves to the point where they no longer fit into the society that they are not necessarily trying to assimilate to, but acclimate to. Right. So I think there is a, a, a possibility for this fear to be enhanced for someone um, other than myself. It, it, it feels like Jek Jekyll and Hyde is a bit more of a universal fear. Well, I think the difference is... Despite it being an MGM movie. Right. Um, the difference is, like, there's a difference in culpability, in that, like, both movies in a way are about losing control, right? And the mm -hmm. fear of losing control. But for Jekyll, he is essentially choosing to lose control by taking his potion. And then it becomes about, oh shit, what did I do when I didn't have any control, right? That kind of alcoholic sphere of, like, waking up the next morning and what did I do? Versus Irina's thing, which is this fear of, like, what will happen if I let the dark side of myself come out? And that dark side being all the things about your identity that you have repressed, whether that's your heritage or your sexuality or, you know, just the parts of yourself that you're not comfortable with other people knowing. There's a there's a Archie Goodwin, uh, who's a comic book editor... Uh, wrote an essay about cat people. It's something I always think about when I watch cat people, um, at least since I read this essay. I suspect he's talking about watching cat people and trying to figure out what actually scared him when he saw the movie. I suspect what really scared me about cat people is that we identify with the struggle going on in the main character. Consciously or unconsciously, we feel there's this dark thing in all of us struggling to get out. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's all the frustrations of being who we are instead of who we'd like to be or feel others want us to be. But yeah, that's that's the difference, right? It's like Jekyll, in some sense, is culpable for what's mm -hmm. happening to him. Irina has been cursed. It's not her fault that she's like this. It's Jekyll's fault that he's he's like that. And, you know, how does that change the horror, right? Is it more horrific that you're under the control of this thing that, you know, is not your fault? 
Or is it more horrific to know that on some level you were responsible for the terrible things that you did? I think, honestly, that you were responsible. Because that comes along with all the guilt and shame. Mm. There's, there's the Jekyll and Hyde fear, which is, like, as you said, has more guilt and shame because you're, you know on some level you're responsible. But there's also the thing of when we think about Irina's problem as being a metaphor for mental illness, mental illness tends to travel in the family the way that Irina's lycanthropy is inherited. <laughs> and there's something about knowing that there's something wrong with you, that it's not your fault, that you didn't do anything to bring it upon yourself. You know, the way that an alcoholic has to face up to the fact that they are responsible for not just their actions when they're under the influence, but they have to make that choice to drink, right? To start that ball rolling. Um, at a certain point it stops, like any snowball, it sort of gets out of their hands, um, but they have to start that ball rolling. When you inherit mental illness, you didn't do anything to start that, right? It feels like you're at the whims of something that you can't control. You're, You're sort of a bit of a marionette because there are cycles in your brain and there are behaviors that were locked in genetically before you were born. Um, And that can be sort of a form of horror too. Just knowing every day when you wake up, like, oh, um, I don't really know how I'm going, what I'm going to do today because I don't know how I'm going to react to a situation. Um, One, you know, piece of verbiage uh, about mental illness that has sort of crossed into popular usage and become something kind of different is the idea of, like, triggering, right? The idea Mm -hmm. that when you have traumas uh, or when you have a mental illness, there are certain things that will trigger that off that you might not necessarily know what all of those triggers are and you might not know what kind of response they'll trigger. Irina at least has the comfort of knowing that her trigger is sex and what will result is murderous panther woman. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think think they are both horrors, but they're... It's interesting to consider how they are related but different. Mm-hmm. However, it feels like the argument you were making is that this is not as horrific as Jekyll and Hyde. Yes. I just keep thinking about the scene in Jekyll and Hyde when Ivy comes to Jekyll and is like telling him all the things that Hyde has done, and he's forced to stare right in the face of the pain he's caused Mm. and the look on his face of like, how could I have let myself do this? Yeah. I think cat people has some really good, scary scenes, but it's still other people who are being terrified. Mm -hmm. I don't think like, I think Irina is scared of it and she says she's fearful of it, but once it starts to happen, I think she enjoys it. And I can't really fault her for that. The other thing for me is, um, it's hard to bring this up as a criticism because it's something I like about Cat People. I like that Cat People is a normal movie right up until the moment when it isn't. But I think Jekyll and Hyde sustains an atmosphere of horror longer. Mm -hmm. 
some of this is going to come down to taste. You know, when you're at this high ranks in the list, some of it comes down to taste what particularly you prefer. Or, I don't know, I don't know if prefer is the right word. What you find most horrific. But Jekyll and Hyde is crueler. Mm -hmm. Like, it's crueler to its characters. It has a crueler, meaner feeling to it. You know, Hyde is much more monstrous. Irina is almost at the whims of nature. So I think you're making the argument that, like, the fact that Hyde has culpability and choice makes it more horrific for Jekyll. And that it's a bit more universal. Right. And I also think that makes it more horrific for all the characters around him. Because there's a cruelty to Hyde that isn't quite there with Irina. Like, Irina's cruelty is the cruelty of an animal, of a cat, that's just kind of playing with its food, right? But it's not, like, the concentrated abuse that Hyde puts upon people. It's not the same level of... Malice. Malice, yeah, exactly. Okay. So are we... So we're agreed then? Yeah. So entering the list at number two with the... (laughs) Reigning champion, still unopposed, (laughs) is Cat People, from 1942, directed by Jacques Tourneur. If you would like to see this list of the best to worst horror movies, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You'll find links to the other episodes, freshly confirmed list of, with links, um, apologies that the links had been, uh, incorrect in the past, but they are now all good and we've figured out what the glitch was. You can also find an appeals box on our website. If you would like to appeal this or any other ranking, you can submit an appeal through our website or email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can find us through our RSS feed on whatever podcast app you like to use. Um, If there is a service that you use that lets you leave a rating or a review for a show, please do that for us. Uh, We appreciate the feedback, and also doing that makes algorithms make the show show up for other people in their feeds more frequently and prominently. So we really appreciate it. Uh, Another thing we appreciate is just telling a friend about the show, you know, we really appreciate that, whether you're doing that on Twitter or Tumblr or Facebook or in real life. Just sharing the show with a friend helps us out a lot. Uh, if you feel inclined, you can also support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash podcast, And there you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 level get access to special bonus audio. And patrons at the $10 level get access to bespoke horror short fiction if we hit our patreon goal of 150 dollars a month we'll start doing a fifth bonus episode every month that details a horror adjacent film such as the rocky horror picture show or abbott and costello meet frankenstein or the 1999 version of the mummy um stuff that isn't really horror but But it's adjacent yeah (laughs) So once again, that's patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, 
let me tell you. I did ask, so please do tell me. We're going back to PRC uh, for a film directed by PRC co-founder Sam Neufeld. And it stars George Zuko. My boy. And it also stars Dwight Fry. My other boy. My it's, sweet baby uh, boy is coming home. It's uh, called Dead Men Walk. Do they, though? It's from 1943. Oh, hey, we're in 1943. Yep. That's cool. <laughs> All right, well, we will see you folks in 1943 next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.